think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 111 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 112th episode. I'm Laurent Carboneau. I'm Ethan Rainbow. And uh, this week we have with us once again economist Angela McEwen of, uh, of CUPE these days, I believe. That's right. Yeah, I've moved over to CUPE a couple years ago now. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And you uh, also, in addition to teaching jobs in the, well, since I guess, since you've been on the show, so the very recent past when it comes to uh, the, the peculiar archaeology of the show's timeline uh, and subsequent appearances, uh, you have just had a book come out. Yes. So I uh, co-wrote a book with uh, Jonathan Govan, who's the research director uh, for the leader of the NDP, I think. Is that how that org structure works? I'm not 100% sure. I believe sure. so. Um, and <laughs> I, I, I know Joe reasonably well. Yeah. So he, uh, he contacted me in December and said, hey, you want to write a book about how we can tax the rich? And I thought that sounded like fun. So um, we put it together and that the idea was to kind of create a, a guide, a how-to. We think we know how to tax the rich. We think that the policies, um, the research, all of that work has been done. It's more a matter of political will at this point for a number of, of factors. And there's obviously, um, there's technical issues when it comes to tax havens and having to, to do international cooperation in order, because it really is a global issue. Now, it's not just Canada that's worried about taxing the rich. It's um, a lot of developed countries are uh, starting to realize they've cut taxes uh, too much and <laughs> they need some of that revenue back. So what, what is the name of the book, just so we can get that plug in early? Oh, sure. So the name of the book is it's called Share the Wealth. It's a super long title. That's just the start. It's Share the Wealth, How We Can Tax Canada's Super Rich and Create a Better Country for Everyone. Available wherever fine books are sold, I'm sure. That's so, uh... right. So it's available <laughs> in chapters, which was very exciting for me to have a book actually, you know, in that bookstore, but it's also available at smaller bookstores. So here in Ottawa, um, it's at Octus, Octopus Books. Wonderful. Yeah, a great, a great place. Uh, also around the corner from a good deli. And if you get the porchetta sandwich there, uh, I highly recommend it. Um, yeah, that, that's, that sounds really good. Uh, I just wanted to, yeah, like we, we can have a, a kind of broader conversation. I think uh, we will be preaching to the converted with each other on the desirability of taxing the rich, though Etienne can, can jump in if he wants to defend, uh, defend their honor. Uh, a little bit, though I suspect that may not be the case so much. I don't know that he's particularly invested in uh, in maintaining uh, their their gains. Um, but yeah, I wanted to talk about the kind of the. So first of all, I guess is is what's sort of the what's the tax structure that we would be looking at in terms of of what you would recommend as as optimal from the point of view of, of as uh, Jean Baptiste Colbert put it um, in the 17th century, uh, the maximum of plucking for the minimum of hissing. Right. So if you look at the wealth tax proposed by the NDP in the last federal election, that's kind of what they were going for, I think. Right. So they put the, a wealth tax at 1% of wealth over $20 million. And so mm -hmm. the idea was that um, it's actually not that much money and it would probably be easier for people to pay the tax than it would be for them to try to restructure their, their wealth and avoid it. Um, and where that optimal line is, is, is quite 
interesting. So if you look at economists like Gabriel Zuckman or um, Lars Osberg in Canada has looked at this and they've said, you know, the marginal utility of an additional dollar for a billionaire is quite small. And Mm -hmm. so if you look at um, introducing a new tax, there, there may be a behavioral response just purely not because they need the money, but just sort of philosophically, right? They might feel... To, to own the limbs. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, that, but that if you're thinking about it kind of in a, in a moral or ethical uh, way in terms of the utility that they get from that money, um, Lars Osberg said, you know, it kind of makes sense that uh, at a certain point, 70% tax rates... Uh, would probably be utility maximizing, as economists say. And so <laughs> we kind of have to think about why we wouldn't uh, want to get closer to that than, than where we are right now. Sure. So, so just as a, uh, to situate the NDP's uh, proposal, what was the amount of revenue that was estimated to, to be generated by the tax? So when the parliamentary budget officer first did their analysis, they estimated in the first year it would raise $5.6 billion, ramping up um, over time. And um, an economist on the, on the West Coast, Alex Hemingway, re-ran the numbers with um, an updated database of wealth in Canada and, um, and, a, and some different assumptions because what the parliamentary budget officer assumed was that there would be a one third, um, like that the rich would be able to hide one third of their assets. And so you would only be able to tax two thirds of the wealth that was out there. And so uh, Alex Hemway used some, some different elasticities and different numbers and assumptions um, that Gabriel Zuckman has gotten out of natural experiments. Um, and, and he came up with the number of 10 billion. And so, and that's just with the 1% wealth tax. If you choose a slightly different model, like you lower the bar for wealth to 10 million, um, you do a progressive rate, maybe you charge 2% over a certain amount, you can, you mm-hmm. can reasonably get quite easily up to $20 billion a year from a wealth tax in Canada. So that is a fair amount of money. Um, the the childcare program that you were talking about I, was thirty billion dollars over however many five years, five years. years. Yeah. So like that that covers childcare and pharmacare and a whole bunch of other things that you want to do. Well, I want to do. Sorry, I don't know if you guys. <laughs> <laughs> so so let me just start. Um, let, let's get some of these things out of the way with sort of the basic objections to a wealth tax, not not philosophically, just in terms of implementation. Um, so the first one, of course, of course, rapidly becomes how are you going to evaluate um, wealth? Um, because the idea, I mean, there have been different historical implementations of it, but it's always gotten sticky in terms of assets change every year. Uh, the values of assets change. Um, you know, real estate is skyrocketing these days. Is just one example, and having the CRA go out and evaluate every painting and every you know item in one's house um, is sticky business. And by keeping it above twenty million, I think you're uh, you're limiting the number of individuals that it apply to. I'm sure there's a number for the uh, the percentage of Canadians above twenty billion. Um, I imagine. Do you have like, that number? It was 120,000. Okay, 120,000 people who you would have to do some sort of evaluation of their right. um, of their assets. Um, 
but much of it is declared too, right? Like they would declare it for the purposes of other of other taxation, well, this is but a not lot necessarily of that, art assets. Exactly, it would be covered by insurance, yeah. right? For example, if you have art, you would have some valuation um, mm-hmm. of it you, when you bought it, um, and it wouldn't be perfect, but but certainly, yeah, most of that would be valued. I w- I would think for insurance purposes, at least, you would have some valuation on a bunch of that stuff. I have I have read the the somewhat sarcastic proposal that you know the government should have the option of buying things at the value that the uh, of buying the <laughs> item in question yeah. at the value that the that the individual pegs um, it's worth at, which you know it does have a certain amount of uh, amount of internal logic to it. Right. Um, but is there has there been a lot of thought as to how that like the state capacity to do this in Canada ultimately is what I'm asking. Yeah, I mean, I I think that that's not going to be the hardest problem. We do have um, excellent ability to do audits and uh, to fairly value things in the market. What has happened in other countries is that um, specific groups of people have argued to have things excluded, like art. So they've said, no, 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 we want to encourage... um, people to buy big pieces of art and so we shouldn't tax that that type of wealth and so then you create this problem that now other people don't think it's fair because some types of wealth aren't taxed and other types are and Mm -hmm. it becomes um it creates you know these adverse incentives where people if they're going to buy something they'll buy art instead of um something else and so that's really what you want to avoid is having these different types of exclusions and then the other problem with a lot of European wealth taxes, was they set the bar really low. It was in like the hundreds of thousands. And so you had problems where you had family farms or uh, other family businesses were now hitting up against this wealth tax. Or like you said, your um, your grandmother was in the home that she's lived in her whole life and it, it's the value has skyrocketed and it's now worth a million dollars, but she's living on a pension. Um, and so she mm-hmm. couldn't possibly afford to pay pay the wealth tax. So that's why I do think it makes sense um, to have that bar quite a bit higher um, than it has been set in some of those European countries where they've had this problem that has led to the the wealth tax, you know, being being removed in some places. France, I believe, yeah. This yeah, France is sort of the issue of pensioners losing their yeah. having to sell their yeah. homes to pay wealth taxes, and that was sort of the emblematic sort of failure state of the last ten years. They implemented it when they won the president. The Socialist Party implemented it when they won the presidency again in two thousand twelve, and then it's sort of been chipped away at steadily. And the the Macron government sort of got rid of it. Uh, I think they replaced it with like something that was like far more watered down. I mean, lots of those uh, countries still exist in like a, yeah, they still have inherent form though. They have other yeah. types of wealth taxes that, that we don't in Canada. So we have nothing here. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's that, yeah. So actually let's talk about estate taxes. Cause that's something that comes up a lot sort of in the context of, of like, so the whole point of a wealth tax to some extent is to say that like, there's a certain point at which, you know, in a market economy, the whole idea is that you you get returns, you know, whether in the form of wages or, or investment based on productivity, right? And at some point we start saying, okay, well, at, at a certain level, like the additional dollar you get, and this is the point made with marginal dollar, is just not really doing society any good in terms of sending a useful signal that like your activities are, are good and producing value. So let's take some of that back and use it for, for other priorities rather than just, you know, sitting in like a Smaug-like pile <laughs> in a bank account somewhere or in the form of investments, a Smaug-like pile of stock, if you will. Um, 
Absolutely. So, and, and I would argue that those piles are actually signals to policymakers that something's broken in the system, that nobody gets that wealthy um, by following all the rules, right? By being, yeah. treating people fairly. <laughs> like, you're not, you're yes. either, you're not paying your workers or you're charging your consumers too much or you're not following environmental regulations. Like you're somehow something is going wrong here that you're able to accumulate this much money because under a capitalist system, you're not supposed to be able to, you have some type of monopoly power that you're, you're likely abusing. And so the, the wealth tax is really kind of to step in and, and be a corrective on that power that, that um, mm-hmm. they're using to, to hoard that unreasonable amount of wealth. But at the same time, so let me let me just take the uh, the more left wing proposal of saying, you know, a one percent tax does not accomplish that, right? Like uh, a one percent tax is uh, not going to change or reverse any of those signals. I mean, by by your own admission earlier on this podcast, you designed it to be implementable um, in in the Canadian context and to to fit sort of the perfect middle ground between. Um, things that people would try very actively um, to avoid and things that they would just likely throw up their hands and say, fine, I'll, I'll pay the bill. Um, yeah, so it's, I guess it's, do you think nudges work? And do you think that this is an effective nudge? So do you think that implementing a wealth tax might nudge um, someone to saying, well, if I'm just going to be paying this in tax to the government, why don't I give my workers a higher wage? Why don't I pay it to improve the productivity of my company um, like buy a new machine, do something more productive than just paying it to the government in taxes. So I do think that it's possible if we had higher corporate tax rates um, along with a, a higher wealth tax, because a lot of wealth is is actually in ownership of, of stocks and, and financial mm-hmm. uh, tools, that then, um, then that might nudge them into making better, just what I think are better decisions or more productive decisions, right? So let me touch on that point there, that a lot of wealth is in, um, uh, you know, assets of various types, right? Is the idea that they would pay in those assets? Let let me give you an example, right? Like Jeff Bezos uh, is worth $50 trillion, um, but the vast majority of that is in stock. And so the idea, you know, his his 1% bill comes up um, in February, March. Um, is the idea that he would have to liquidate those assets or that he would pay the government in sort of the asset of of his choosing? Uh, because it does create sort of really interesting practical considerations when you're talking about the ultra wealthy and the fact that perhaps they don't have 1% of their wealth in uh, in liquid assets or liquid form that the, the CRA is typically used to accepting. Sure. Um, I mean, I think... Jeff Bezos would get enough dividends um, to be able to pay a 1% wealth tax in dividends or in the interest that he's got on some of his liquid assets. I don't, I don't know how he's got his, uh, his wealth structured, but yeah, sure. Look at um, David Thompson's family that we mentioned in the book. Um, The Thompson family owns a lot of their wealth is in not even publicly traded companies, right? It's in, it's in private companies that they couldn't Mm -hmm. sell the, the shares of and so how does how did they come up with the money uh that i mean no we're not i don't think we're going to take ownership of private companies um as payment for a wealth tax uh i don't think they would be sending us shares of whatever the holding company of all their assets are 
That'd be pretty dope. Yeah, though. right. We could just slowly <laughs> nationalize things with a wealth tax. Well, that's, yeah, I mean that's actually it's funny you say that because there was a sort of at least semi-serious consideration of this. Uh, I think Matt Bruning, among other people, have kind of looked at the idea of sort of turning corporate taxes into instead of paying us X, you know, percent of your dividends uh, or your profits, rather, it's you give us X percent of your shares, um, and that over time you would sort of gradually nationalize a big chunk of the economy this way and i guess that that's sort of beyond the ambit of, of where you're looking uh in this book but it is yeah no we didn't go it, uh... that far for yeah. sure i think <laughs> we assumed that they would they would probably pay in cash because anything else is difficult yes. um but you, you could imagine a, a situation where they sell their assets to the cppib or something right <laughs> in order to to liquidate them so in terms of the, I mean, the, the other difficulty here that is often run into is, of course, the, the issue of, of tax havens, right? It's that, it's that the very wealthy maintain their assets in, in a sort of web of sort of complex corporate arrangements based in, you know, uh, third jurisdictions that don't have, you know, financial transparency laws or very lax ones. And of course, people point to, you know, the Cadian Islands or the Isle of Man uh, and several others. Um, I don't want to single out the Cayman Islands and, and now Van here. They're they in good company, but uh, they're the first two that came to mind. So I, I guess an interesting thing is I, for, for some of our listeners, and I'm sure you've, you've done you know a lot more work on this than, than either of us have, is sort of what's the kind of short history of the use of tax havens in, in sort of uh, the, the G7 countries? And when did that kind of start being a big problem? And then sort of what has kind of been done about it in recent years, if anything? So Canada uh, actually helped set up a bunch of tax havens. Um, the UK did the, did the same. That's why it's the Isle of Man. And there's also uh, Jersey and Guernsey, some sort of, uh, they're not quite, you know, British, but they're, they've got this relationship they are with the They crown dependencies. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so um, they can have slightly different rules. Uh, and so it, it was kind of like an active planning thing where um where financial rules were set up to help basically launder money and avoid taxes uh and and the uh canada the uk a bunch of uh, countries through the oecd the the organization for economic cooperation and development have started that's to the organization that bill morneau is president of I <laughs> Well, I think he, I think he withdrew his uh, candidacy for some reason. I don't, don't quite. Oh, okay, funny. Really I, I thought, I thought that was a sure thing. More Bill Morneau content coming to this podcast very <laughs> soon, by the way, folks. Um, so, yeah, there's a process called BEPS and like base eroding and profit shifting, where they're trying to coordinate because it is a global issue. It's a global problem, um, and to some extent. Uh, policymakers uh, certainly don't like that all of this money goes to tax havens and that uh, that we avoid that they avoid paying tax on them uh, but it's been around for a long time so we do talk about in the book how um, the Irving family the like grandfather in the Irving family went and set bought a residence I think in the Cayman Islands um, in order to set up his estate so that his heirs wouldn't have to be paying taxes in the same way. Loblaws, mm -hmm. that's owned by the Westons, um, set up a bank in in a, in one of these countries that the tax haven country. I can't remember which one, 
and uh, they they shifted profit through it but because it was legal by the laws of the country that it was in to do what they were doing um, there was a court case in Canada where Canada tried to uh, get that money back and um, the courts was like no actually that was legal so our legal structure allows stuff that is obviously um, avoiding taxes right you're obviously doing this only to get out of avoiding taxes and so Murray Rankin, who was uh, NDP MP, wanted to add a bit to the legislation that was called the Economic Substance Rule. And he proposed a bill in 2017. I think he, he'd been working on it even before that. Um, and that would say, if your activity in this country, it has to be for, a, a, there has to be a valid economic substantial economic right. reason so for you doing this you can't that's sort of addressing the profit shifting side of it, this exactly right? that's the profit shifting yeah. side and that's that happens a lot so rivera is a long-term care company that's owned by the public service pension um and they have subsidiaries in the uk and the uk has better financial transparency rules than canada and so sictar which is uh, an organization around um corporate transparency they they did a, an investigation into Rivera's operations in the UK, and they found out that uh, a bunch of stuff was run through. I think it was either Jersey or Gurney. All of the the major directors of the organization had their own private companies in these islands, and all of the profits were going through those companies in the in the tax haven. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it's legal. Uh, it's just it's it's avoiding taxes and so what we saw in budget 2021 was a suggestion for more consultation on stuff like this economic substance rule that we know and have known for a long time would make a big difference that would help us actually um, be successful in addressing uh, some of these issues so the profit shifting thing is i think we can kind of set it to one side for because it's not really like the individual like wealth taxation that I think is, is kind of the, the real heart of, uh, of the book. Though, correct me if I'm wrong, because as I mentioned, uh, not here, Jen and I have read it because it has just come out. Uh, so uh, no, we mentioned me we mentioned there, tax but... havens, but um, Canadians okay. for Tax Fairness have there's a chapter on it, and there's um, Alain Deneau has written a fantastic book. I was on a panel with him, and I got a copy of it. Um, but he's written several books on Canada's role in creating tax havens. Um, there are even like states in the United States uh, that are tax havens. Yeah, Delaware first, and right? especially. Yeah. yeah, and Canada's role in helping to establish and set up and use these tax havens. Um, it's really interesting and I would really recommend that, that people get it. Yeah, that sounds really good. I will uh, I will look that up and then yeah. drop it into the, and, the show notes. And it for, also, uh, I think it has time. a better name in, in French. It's like Paradis Fisco or something. So, yeah. <laughs> it's a great, it, the French word for tax haven in general. Yeah, Paradis Fisco is a really, really fantastic one. You can imagine the money kind of just sunning itself on a beach. Exactly. Time. Um, but yeah, so on the profit shifting side, and just to explain that for listeners, it, 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 correct me if I'm wrong once again here, because, you know, I've, these are concepts I encounter once every couple of months and I, I sort of file away in my head. So if I get a detail wrong, let me know. But essentially it's like you have things like Apple who, you know, operate a bunch of European subsidiaries, uh, but they basically book all of the profits through Apple Ireland by sort of like charging the subsidiaries, like charge each other essentially bogus, you know, accounts for, for various services rendered that don't really exist. But the point is basically to book all of the profits 
in the lowest tax jurisdiction and then pay the lowest corporate tax corporate tax rate that they can through sort of moving that around exactly so so okay. with the the long-term care example all of the long-term care is happening you know at a physical location in the uk but then um, these private companies in the tax haven are then billing that organization for services rendered consulting that, exactly yeah. consulting <laughs> or uh, sure. whatever and and so then those values are inflated to capture all yeah. of the profit right so and, and yeah and then on the uh, on the sort of personal wealth side people basically just set up you know various accounts in banks or, or what have you financial institutions of whatever kind in tax haven jurisdictions and then because of the very limited you know financial transparency uh and the like the, the fact that these guys don't you know the, the financial institutions in these countries are not really obligated to cooperate with with tax authorities and sort of domicile countries yeah that they can just keep it there and no one will be the wiser exactly no one can find yeah. the money because they're keeping it in a bank account somewhere and and canada has really bad fiscal transparency laws um in general and so it's really easy for people to launder money so that's that's quite a problem we've seen this in bc where bc is is trying oh, yeah. to address <laughs> address yeah. that but so it make it makes canada uh a place where you can get some pretty sketchy financial yeah and there's happening. a yeah. snow washing right i think is the term people use for for bc money laundering uh internationally which is lovely to to have that be a be a thing that has to have a description i guess yeah real point of pride um, it it would be this. Uh, it would not be this podcast if I didn't if I didn't raise the the finance committee is sort of mid study or early study on this, um, and has been going uh, has had sort of a multi party effort to go after KPMG on some of their previous practices on some of their historical practices in terms of setting up um, uh, offshore you know creative accounting for their clients. And one of the stories I haven't been I admit I haven't been following this one um, super closely, but there was cross-party support, including the Conservatives, um, for getting a list of clients from KPMG um, outlining the names of who who well, the individuals <laughs> were that uh, they helped with their creative accounting. And KPMG's excuses were sort of, you know, it's, it's complicated. So uh, stay tuned on that front to see how it plays out, as I believe there was a, a deadline set to them. That'll be that interesting, interesting. I did not because know that. there were Canadians that were listed in the Panama Papers and the, I can't remember what the other one was called. The Paradise, Paradise Papers. Papers. But there haven't, I don't think there have been any arrests or any prosecutions that have come out of that. This has also been one of the areas of study. I have to pull it up. I can't remember where it is. Um, but I believe CRA officials came and testified on this and basically said, we've audited a bunch of the names and... You know, we've got a few million here and there, but largely nothing major, nothing substantive. A lot of it was rabbit ears legit. So, right, uh, because but, our but legislation I... sucks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all, yeah. Um, I guess that that sort of takes us to the question of like, uh, you know, why do tax? So tax havens, obviously, like if you look at it from a, a broad kind of of perspective, they, they sort of are the embodiment of a collective action problem where every state has an incentive to some extent to say, hey, well, okay, if we don't have a lot going on economically where we are, what we can do is basically turn our lack of financial transparency into an asset for us. And, you know, they're still booking like, you know, token amounts of taxes 
but they're better off than they would be had they not done it uh, because they don't have like you know whatever other industries going on except for you know maybe tourism to some extent but so they don't really have a reason to not do it well, and I, uh, I but feel obviously like it, it hurts other countries. Well, exactly. But I feel like the bankers or the elite in that country of the um, tax haven do benefit. So mm-hmm. they yeah. they have they do have some internal pressure to continue this. Yeah. Structure, oh, yeah. Right? I'm sure like it actually is on balance. Like, you know, the Cayman Islands or the Isle of Man are, are better off for being tax havens than they would be without it. It's just that that obviously creates really damaging externalities for Other everyone else in the yeah. world. <laughs> yeah. And we, we saw in Ireland that it actually didn't help their economy, right? It didn't create jobs. It didn't draw industry the way they expected it to. Mm-hmm. So it just had a tidal wave of money like sloshing in and out without really ever hitting the ground in any meaningful exactly. way. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess that, that brings us to the question of like, so this is an obvious harm. Uh, and the, the benefits to these countries, I think, are, are, I think we can agree, probably reasonably limited. I think they're, they're probably good on the margin, you know, if you're, if you're a tax haven, um, if you don't have anything else going on. But so why do these exist, I guess, is, is like what, you know, I, I think um, Matt Iglesias said on the Weeds many, some years ago that, you know, if, if a country, if a small Caribbean island decided tomorrow that they weren't going to honor pharmaceutical patents and just set up a, a factory to produce generic whatever they would have u.s marines kicking through the windows of the presidential palace like within 36 hours uh, obviously that has not been the case with uh, with financial transparency and and sort of uh, tax haven so what's uh like what's the story there and is there any i i think um listen, attentive listeners to this podcast may have heard about uh, janet yellen the treasury secretary in the u.s talking a little bit about how they might take take a hammer to some of this and and where you see that going I mean, my, my thinking, I don't know, but my thinking is that it's, it's elites in all of the countries do well by it. And so mm-hmm. there's a lot of pressure to keep that, that status quo the way um, that it is. There's also, I mean, just like there are labor strikes, there are capital strikes. And so capital mm-hmm. may well um, in a lot of countries, uh, maybe not in the United States, but definitely in, in Canada or other smaller G7 countries, capital might say, you know what, if you really do crack down here, we're going to move all our headquarters somewhere else. And um, and so I think that most capital strike threats are not credible. Um, but if you're a government, the consequences of that capital strike, I think, I think you have to yeah. take it seriously. Yeah. Yeah. It ended your... No, you're good. Yeah, okay. I, I was just going to say, why Why do you find them not credible? Because in the absence of, you know, coordinated um, international action, I mean, we talk about we talk about it in terms of greenhouse gases, in terms of, you know, it, it functions into, or uh, it, it is a function of a lot of different policy areas that we have to consider the international dynamics and the ability for companies to pack up and mm-hmm. leave. Um, this is, you know, what I said struggles over. It's what ECCC struggles over. It's what many government departments who fund anything basically um, struggles over in terms of striking a balance between uh, generous subsidies and regulations and, you know, a number of other 
um, policy considerations. Why do you feel that it's not the that it's not a credible threat that the Irvings, you know, the Irvings have substantial holdings in the United States. Um, they were willing. I think uh, you, you made reference to it, and I've read uh, Irving versus Irving, um, and I think he actually ended up moving basically to the Caymans permanently um, as a result of a desire to obtain better tax planning. Um, so, like, I guess, why do you evaluate that as not credible and not as a higher risk? So. Um, I don't know that Canada was worse off for him moving to the Cayman Islands, right? So, okay, take your toys and go home. Uh, we still have gas stations here. We still have uh, lumber companies. We still have shipbuilding. Um, the consequences of that particular billionaire um, leaving and going somewhere else, I don't, I don't think um, are what... Uh, they would hope it was, <laughs> right? Because all, of, their, all of that there. industry is still happening yeah. here. It's just someone else. Maybe they'll sell it and someone else will own it. Um, I think that the real capital strike threat, though, is is like corporate assets, right? It's factories so, leaving rather than it is Exactly. So it's like GM shut up shop and, and move. Sure. That's definitely a credible threat, right? So I, I think it's not always a credible threat. Sometimes it is credible and sometimes... Uh, you you have to weigh it, but uh, a lot of when you talk to companies and when you think about why they're making investments, if they're productive companies, they're making the investment based on whether or not they can make money, and whether or not they can make money depends on a whole host of factors. Whether there's demand for their goods in that area, whether they can mm -hmm. attract talent in that area, whether like there's affordable housing, so like it's they can actually pay lower wages because it's cheaper for their workers to live there. So if you want to locate in downtown Toronto versus Barrie, for example, right? It becomes a question of, can you still attract the type of talent that you want in Barrie that you think you can in downtown Toronto mm -hmm. or in um, some other country? Like if you wanted to move to, to the States, would you, what do you have to pay? What is the cost of doing that versus what you think the benefit is? And so I think a lot of times there's this one little thing that, that they're talking about, like the corporate tax rate or, or the specific tax that's only a tiny factor in the whole decision-making process about where to so, invest. So, yeah. I, I, I think that's... Oh, go ahead, Jen. Let, let me actually just channel Laurent for a minute because um, <laughs> what, what, I, what, I, uh, what I think you would say normally would be something like capital isn't always rational. Um, that like if, if you're anticipating capital to act rationally in all cases and, and using the Irvings is actually a really great example because it's not a public company, right? Yeah. They are not uh, responsible shareholders. shareholders. So they can yeah. make irrational decisions <laughs> to pack up shop in New Brunswick and move it all to Maine where they have, you know, they have substantial Absolutely. assets and holdings, right? Yeah, they're, they're humans and they behave irrationally sometimes. Yeah. I, I think there, like, I, I think the point about the sort of credibility of, of a capital strike threat is just so that you have to look at the environment and, and think, like, is a company making X amount of profits, like, actually going to really, like, you know, shutter everything, you know, incur new expenses and setting up somewhere else, like, having to sort of, like, navigate a new regulatory ecosystem, et cetera, all for the purposes of, like, avoiding, like, a 1% tax increase. And, like, there will be the occasional guy who just will absolutely do that just to spite you. <laughs> I, I mean, that's... the Irvings have relocated between New Brunswick and Nova Scotia to avoid unions. Like, I'm not saying... Yeah. I think the Irvings in particular uh, are I very Irving, credible. One of my favorite. Uh... <laughs> in terms of this. But I also say, you know what? So what? 
I don't care. Yeah. You make a lot of your money from us and and that that economic activity is going to happen whether or not you're here. And so... I think that's yeah. an important part, though, because we're, we're talking about one piece of the equation, right? Yeah. Um, but if we look at a broader left-wing policy agenda, um, there would be many other items on that list um, that would irk um, Mr. Irving in many different <laughs> ways. So I think I think we're falling a little bit into the trap of saying, you know, it's one percent. If but ultimately, the the conversation, if it if it comes to the point of imposing a wealth tax, is not just going to be about yeah. the singular 1%. And then saying, you know, don't worry, everything else is going to stay exactly the same, folks. It is just this <laughs> one thing we're doing. Don't worry about it. You don't want to move, right? Sure. It, I, you I, have to yeah. take the whole policy menu together. So this was one thing going through the book that the publisher actually, he's like, you know what? These things that you're suggesting, they'd be good for rich people too. And so he kept trying to get us to say that like, that this would make everybody better off, including rich people. And I'm like, you know what? I don't, I'm not so concerned about rich people. They're fine. They can take <laughs> care of themselves. Um, if they don't want free childcare, like, I'm sorry. I'm not going to spend a lot yeah. of energy convincing you that free childcare is good for you as well. I do believe yeah. that it is. I believe that in a society where we have uh, childcare that doesn't cost anything, it's good for poor people and rich people. Um, I think it's better for all of our kids. I think if we have core infrastructure that's public like a national bus system i think that's better i think that creates a society that everybody wants to be part of more um yeah i don't think mr irving would like it uh but that's you know some people do have very specific ideological visions that that maybe that irks them but that doesn't mean there's not shared value for people whether they have lots of money or they don't so I think let's zoom out just for to, to kind of conclude this part of the conversation. And I think like there's a, you know, like you look at the NDP, you look at, at various other sort of social democratic labor parties across um, Western democracies and the, the kind of premise there of their, their overall strategy is that you can have a sort of effective social democratic state at the national level with, you know, accompanying you know, regulations, et cetera, like creating this sort of like left-wing policy ecosystem and that that will not provoke capital flight to a degree that will be economically ruinous. Um, that's sort of the premise. I think like that's a premise that deserves at least a look to say like, is that actually viable? Like, can you have a sort of a social democracy in one country? Uh, or do you actually need in the sort of like uh, very fluid economic situation globally and in the era of globalization do you actually need to like build an internationalism and coordinate uh between countries and how feasible is that given that they each country is responding to its own national electorate uh when the problems in the economic stuff that you're managing really i think you would optimally manage at the international level yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely easier right now to talk about taxing the rich because Biden is also talking about taxing the rich yeah. because the conservatives in the UK are talking about increasing the corporate tax rate. Um, and I think that's why Yellen proposed a, a like a minimum global corporate tax rate. Um, I think she's mm -hmm. proposed two different types, one for American companies, like that they would pay, you know, 15 percent of their profits no matter where they were earned. Um, and then another idea that that we would somehow have an international agreement because we've we've 
economic activity is so integrated um, that it does yeah. become actually quite difficult to track and uh, and coordinate when there's national uh, national rules and and the companies actually are are all over the place, right? They they yeah. operate across many jurisdictions. And, and in Canada, we know that that's, that's quite difficult, even just with different uh, rules at the provincial level. So Yeah, that's true. Like, there is so, sort of, like, jurisdictional shopping that happens even in, in subnational jurisdictions. So yeah. it's sort of... But even there, then it's easier because at least you have a, a federal or central government that can come in and say, okay, like, we are setting this floor. Yeah, exactly. Uh, where internationally, you don't have that, really. Like, you have it to some degree in the EU, and you could theoretically have it, like, if... if uh, Secretary Yellen like manages to get one negotiated, but then of course you have the problem of well, someone could just pull out and and be the sort of uh, defector in a prisoner's dilemma, right? Like it's well, uh, and that's why I think a lot of the international institutions that we have, like the International Labor Organization or the United Nations, are fairly ineffective at actually. They don't have any sticks. Only they only have carrots. Right. Yeah. Which makes them just more of a farmer's market at that point. Yeah, I mean, it's it's maybe a tool for developing <laughs> a consensus, uh, for working together and um, pushing each other a little bit. But yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, it's limited in how much it can enforce. Yeah. So I think we will, we will leave the, the taxation of, of the wealthy there for, for the moment and talk a little bit about... Um, the, the recent budget. Uh, so Angela and I had the, the the fun the fun day of being in lockup together on uh, on uh, budget day, and I, I told her we would have her on to, to come talk about some of the stuff we, we noticed when we were reading it. Um, and one th obviously the the big one, and I know that we've discussed it with you in the past, is childcare. There was a huge investment in childcare, and I think there was a lot of suspicious reaction, you know, left of the liberals of, of like, is that actually going to happen? But uh, I want to get your sense of, first of all, is that likely to happen? And second, uh, like, what are the, the broad good things that will, will come with that, if so? Or bad things? Uh, it's, it's mostly good. Uh, it's a whole <laughs> bunch of money that they've promised to the provinces. They've started working with the provinces to, to roll that money out. Um, it's focused at, I think, initially making um, the spaces that they have more affordable and then over time increasing the, the spaces. There was a focus mm -hmm. on making sure that, on focusing more on uh, not-for-profit or okay. uh, public, yeah. which is really good. That's something that the, the childcare um, community broadly wanted. Uh, and yeah. because again, just like long-term care, we, we find that um, the profit incentive doesn't uh, lead to really great outcomes for the kids or the workers and so sure. we want to we want to try to if we're going to be subsidizing with government money we want that to be going um, to a higher quality care instead of yeah and i think there you also want to avoid the sort of uh, milligan quebec outcome uh exactly Kevin was on the show last week and yeah he found it for listeners who are unfamiliar with this debate uh found uh, wrote a paper in 2015 uh finding essentially that quebec's child care had really great labor market impacts uh, but had some adverse impact on child development. Uh, and Angela, I believe last time you were on, we asked you about this, and your uh, reaction was that that was a symptom of a system in Quebec that had not had adequate investment and training uh, into their their staff in the early childhood education system. 
Do I recall that yes. correctly? Yeah, they rolled it up very okay. quickly and they didn't have the workforce development plan, but they also kind of downloaded some of the organization to parents. And so, of course, wealthy parents who've got more time um, were able to mm-hmm. organize high quality, small, local, sort of not-for-profit daycares for their kids. And then poorer kids in communities where parents didn't have as much time ended up getting these big box stores um, sure. that had, had worse outcomes. So, yeah, I think we can learn from how Quebec rolled it out. That was one piece that wasn't in the budget was a workforce development plan. Um, and I know, so QP represents a fair number of childcare workers. When they hear government talking about lowering the cost for parents, they get worried because that often comes off their wages um, because yeah. there's not a lot of overhead <laughs> sure. in childcare. I mean, there is the, the physical infrastructure of the building, but once you've got that building, it's mostly labor. It's very labor intensive. Um, the truffles they serve at <laughs> anyone who has kids. Uh, yeah. So cut yeah. the escargot budget yeah. for the crayons last a long and, time, uh, right? Kids are happy with blocks. Yeah. <laughs> and so they, they don't need a lot. You give them a cardboard box, they're happy. No. Um, no, no, no. So, so we want to have that workforce development plan and we want a plan to, like the budget mentioned that uh, workers in the sector are relatively underpaid, um, but they didn't kind of address that further. But it's early stages, so that, that's fine, but we want to, we kind of want to see that because in terms of, you know, a feminist economic perspective, care work is consistently undervalued. And so it tends yeah. to be... Um, not just uh, on along gender lines, it tends to be along racialized lines as well, or recent immigrants. And so the discrimination there that keeps wages down is um, is part of the part of the problem. And so we want to make sure. sure that those wages are really good and that the workers are trained and so they get uh, they get the high quality outcome that we're looking for for those kids. The other sort of big theory about childcare right now, and I think um, the minister mentioned this in her budget speech, if I recall correctly, is that, you know, part of what we saw during the uh, COVID recession, uh, sort of in spring and summer of last year, was women especially being hit really, really hard compared to men because of the sectors they work in being disproportionately affected. Uh, so in that sense, because we know that childcare has, you know, good labor market impacts for women, uh, do you think that this will go some way to sort of uh, rebalancing the economy sort of in the wake of a really sharp shock to uh, female dominated parts of the economy? Absolutely. I mean, we're seeing um, this is why I think we really need to have some training programs uh, offered for people in this sector. Uh, because you're going to be looking at a bunch of people that have um, lost their jobs in retail, like a bunch of young women who could quite easily retrain to be early childhood educators if mm-hmm. um, if there was kind of the promise of a decent job with benefits and and decent wages. Yeah. Right. Because one of the problems in the in the sector is that um, it's fine when you're you're quite young. But uh, if you want to have a family yourself, it doesn't really pay family sustaining wages so, and so well, you yeah, have trouble retaining staff as well right so you get these mm-hmm. really qualified people that are great at their job and and they're like you know what i can't i can't cope the system's overloaded yeah and there's good impacts on the demand side too right in the sense that you can have someone who who's a young mother who lost her job last year doing something you know unrelated to personal care uh but who is better able to get back into the workforce exactly. because she can afford yeah. child it care both creates yeah. jobs for women and it allows um, women 
I mean, if it's really affordable, then it helps you. If you want to go back to school, you can still get some childcare, right? To help you retrain mm -hmm. yourself. Or if you, um, if you're making a decision about whether or not to go back to work or send your kid to childcare, the more expensive childcare is, the harder it is to make the decision um, to go back to work because you're basically working for uh, pennies on the dollar at that point. Absolutely. Can I so, just ask, as, as something I've never um, looked into, what is the typical credentialing of a uh, early childhood uh, care worker? Is it like a short course or is there is there any expectation of a formal credential? Or? Yes, there are there are formal credentials. It's like a two year course at uh, college course. Um, I don't know if you probably there's a certain age group where you wouldn't necessarily always have to have that qualification. Uh, so like if you're working in after four at a school, uh, for example, you'd probably at least have to have first aid and, and some a shorter course. Um, sure. Yeah, but the, uh, the younger I can imagine. Exactly. Uh, the younger, the more credential required. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's 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 good. This is uh, a good overview of, of childcare for for folks who were wondering about the, the context behind that and what the sort of economic spinoffs might be. The other uh, big thing I think that had us rolling our eyes quite a bit uh, during the budget lockup was uh, how this government sort of does industrial policy. Uh, which is to say, very haphazardly, uh, by cutting very big checks and kind of throwing them all over the place. Um, and we observed that, I think, um, you know, Tan and I spoke about this on our, our budget episode in the sort of environmental side of things. There's this um, uh, net zero accelerator and that there's a lot of money going through that. And there are other areas where there, there, there are checks being cut, uh, but we don't really know what that's going to look like. So and we, we talked a bit about uh, the Esalen Spear sort of proposals around around industrial policy. And I was just wondering if you have any views of like if, if you were if you were the um, innovation science and development minister, what would you be doing differently? Oh my goodness, that would be such a horrible job. <laughs> um, it's actually the innovation science and industry minister now. Yes, I will, uh, ISI, I will technically yeah, correct right. you on. Yeah, um, you're correct. So I think that the I was recently at the finance committee presenting um, on their pre-budget submission. I think no, it was it was on the Budget Implementation Act, and Jim Balsilli was there uh, with me, and he interestingly enough, I mean I never quite know uh, how much credibility to give what he said. Like, does he really know what's going on, or is he just kind of good at talking? I don't know. But I did agree with him on some of the points. Canada hasn't had a real industrial policy for a long time. And so we don't really have the bones in government to administer a real industrial policy. So it feels like with this mm -hmm. budget, it felt like they're taking a shortcut to industrial policy by handing out a few million dollars here and a few million dollars there and having a whole bunch of different programs and um, and hoping that that kind of does it. So the, uh, but it feels like it's gonna be quite wasteful. They're just kind of throwing money in the air um, and saying, use it on green things. And it's not <laughs> clear that that's gonna get us to the right place. I'm really nervous about it. Um, yeah. And there's money for like carbon capture and storage, which feels very political. Like, so it feels very open to political manipulation and other forms of manipulation by lobbyists, right? Because they don't have clear mandates, a clear, um, they're not setting up 
um, for example, thinking about the supply chain and do we have all of the pieces in the supply chain here? Are there forward linkages or backward linkages that we want to enhance? Is there infrastructure that is a barrier to people growing? I feel like they haven't done kind of the map of what we have and a picture of where we want to go and and then trying to build in the, the pieces that are missing, right? Instead, yeah. they've got, they're like, okay, we know what we want the narrative to be. We want the story to be. And here's some money that we think will give us photo ops that, to get that story. Yeah. Um, but will that long-term build sustainable industries in Canada? It's really hard to say. So for example, they gave you know several million dollars to Sanofi, uh, the pharmaceutical company. I think it was like, was it like $300 million or, it was a lot of money, a big chunk of money for them to build a plant here um, and hire, you know, they're like, oh, this will create this many jobs. And I think the province of Ontario kicked in money too. But this is a, a French owned multinational, like a gigantic corporation. And if it was profitable for them to build a company here, you'd think that they didn't, wouldn't really need the government incentivizing it so we're not getting mm -hmm. they're doing it because they're being criticized for not having any domestic capacity but they're not yes. actually guaranteeing domestic capacity yeah. with this they're not building I, out um you know the public labs yeah because that would take longer and it would be a harder narrative to build i think there was a five billion dollar investment in sort of bio and life sciences in this budget and i i think we both looked at that and we thought like like, is this, like, if like let's say, let's take it for granted that, like, we want Canada to be better in bio and life sciences. I think, you know, sure. I think we could all agree that that's probably a good thing. But, like, this is a year of a global glut of investment in bio and life sciences. And it's, like, in some senses, perhaps the worst possible strategic timing to be making this investment and have it, like, in terms of bang for buck. Uh, exactly. So, so we, we gave yeah. 3M a bunch of money to build... Um, a factory to have a line to make uh, N95 masks. But mm -hmm. now we've got a lot of N95 masks already. That's not the problem. That was last year's problem. And so that's yeah. another issue when you're doing industrial policy. Are you fighting the last war or are you actually forward thinking to the, to the next war? And the lines, yeah. so for, I looked at the news releases for the 3M one, like the first one said it would, it would protect you know, 3,000 jobs, and the next one was 1,000 jobs, and then the next one was 500 <laughs> jobs. And that's like fewer than the current number of employees that they have across Canada. So they're like, <laughs> the strings that are attached to the money are, are not, uh, there's no way that they'd get, they'd bump up against those restraints, yeah. right? So this government isn't very good about thinking about strings. When they hand out money to corporations, and I've talked to government bureaucrats and to ministers, they're like, no, 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 no. We can, we think we can trust them to do the right thing. And I'm like, you absolutely cannot trust a publicly traded company to do the right thing because they are legally obligated to make a profit. And so if you mm -hmm. don't make the rules such that they have to do X, Y, Z, they are not gonna do X, Y, Z if it cuts into their profit. And so this this fundamental lack of understanding of uh, <laughs> just how capitalism works, even um, just from a mechanical perspective, right? Not even ideological, just mechanical. They don't understand the mechanics yeah. of it or they don't care because what their yeah. real purpose is. This is, I mean, <laughs> I don't know this is true, but it feels like the whole point is the narrative. It's the story. It's the sure. photo op. 
Um, yeah, some, the, someone I know recently phrased it as, you know, governments are increasingly becoming addicted to the photo ops yeah. and the implementation, like, to a certain extent, they literally do not care if nope. whatever they announce comes together um, so long as they were able to cut the ribbon uh, on day one, yeah. Which, yeah. which I think is perhaps not entirely true um, but does get at a really problematic uh, really problematic element of sort of comms driven governments yeah yeah um, that there is not the attention given to implementation uh, whatever the policy is and, and, it, and I think that has been a perennial weakness of this government has been implementing anything um, you know we we've beat up on the super clusters here before <laughs> as, as sort of our favorite punching you bag. know as I mean there's there's many punching bags to choose um, but if, if we're in the realm of industrial policy it's certainly one of them and it always you know the track record and being able to demonstrate what they've done is you know the government has fallen off the bandwagon on that entirely uh, the clusters seem to be undercapitalized even for their own ambitions um, but the government has moved on to new shinier objects and has left these, you know, half-baked um, ideas behind them already. This was the other thing that I found looking through the budget is that there were a number of really good ideas in there, but they were all undercapitalized. There was like a couple of million dollars to this, but there was no sort of rationale for why they thought they would actually be able to accomplish anything with the amount of money that they put towards it or the amount of mm -hmm. time. And so, again, that's why I say like they're really good at comms. They're really good at the at least the starting narrative. Um, but but it's just very clear to me, looking at the numbers, looking at the budget, that that's not going to follow through with that amount yeah. of money. So if you look at just transition, well, and, and, it's just not enough money. Yeah. And to, like, to pick up what you said about um, like this is just like woefully inadequate for the purposes that you're thinking, like to go back to the super clusters. The initial like financial projections for superclusters was they would generate basically like twenty times return on investment, um, and like to me, if you were saying we have a thing that's going to generate twenty times the amount of money we put into it, why in the world would you stop at a billion dollars? <laughs> you know, like, like, I'm just not sure you're at the diminishing returns there. If that's your math, like I think there are reasons to be skeptical of their multiplier there, but like it just kind of like it goes to show that it's kind of unserious on its own terms right because if you were seriously anticipating a 20 times return on investment in terms of growth you would be putting real amounts of money into things and not just sort of like and, and getting know, the, the sticker and i know we've we've made comparable observations in the past but the number that you uh you threw out for the sanofi lab was i think emblematic of this at 300 million dollars the Sanofi lab is 50% larger than any of the given superclusters, <laughs> um, which were supposed to represent Canada's, you know, economic innovation Bet strategy on its economic into future, the yeah. 2030s. Yeah. Um, oof. And, and now, yeah. and now, for that amount of money, we get a, a single lab that I think we have to find people to operate, and it's not clear who's going to operate it, even if it's built um, with all sorts of question marks around it. But at least one day in the future we will have a lab capable of maybe depending on the contract negotiations being able to produce a covid vaccine of some sort well i don't so think it even wants to produce a covid vaccine i think it's going to produce flu vaccines and so okay. there might be um in that process they might be creating some of the uh the inputs to a covid vaccine do you know what i mean like that was the part of the problem in canada because we didn't have all of well there's a global shortage of like the inputs to make the 
the COVID vaccines. So, so let, let me just pick up on one narrative piece of the budget here that I think is relevant for this sort of uh, subset of the conversation, which, you know, we can say industrial strategy out the window, but onshoring seems to be um, a new buzzword in economic policy circles. Um, particularly in relation to this budget, we, I mean, all the investments we're talking about here are sort of examples of the government trying to do onshoring in relation mm -hmm. to shortages that they saw um, during the COVID, uh, the ongoing uh, COVID pandemic. Is that like going to be a dominant economic narrative going forward, where the, the just-in-time, you know, multinational supply chains um, we saw the weakness in them and they are not to be trusted ever again for critical industries. And so there's going to be a lot more uh, Canadian economic nationalism and onshoring of uh, critical infrastructure and industries. I don't like chip manufacture like take it wherever you want. But I don't think so. I mean, China is just so efficient at manufacturing chips. Um, and it's so expensive to like they run 24 seven because it's expensive to set up that that infrastructure to do that. Um, and we don't manufacture them because it's really expensive to do it. So I think the advantages of this, the global supply chain that we've set up again for capitalists is is such that this will not be a long term onshoring thing. There may be token things that we onshore um, like and 95 mask production um and and hopefully i mean i really would like to see canada investing more in pharmaceutical research because um we did used to be a global leader in in some of this research and and we've let that go um over the years and that's something that we could focus on as like a canadian strategy we have great universities we've got the ability to do this kind of research and we can focus on the types of pharmaceutical research that aren't profitable so we we played a role in the ebola um, vaccine right and so maximizing on that type of strength i think makes a lot of sense um I, rather than <laughs> taking up manufacturing of uh I, I don't think Goods. we're gonna manufacture chips in canada or the states yeah. i mean i just don't i just don't see it it's such an expensive process um but i mean we still do subsidize to some extent or protect uh steel industries and that's from the second mm -hmm. world war so there are oh sorry steel i heard seal no yeah, steel <laughs> Um, well, yeah, I guess and the, so. the reason why I think every province in Canada manufactures steel to some extent um, and, or steel products. And that's a, that's a result of, well, we needed steel in the war. And so every country should have its own. And, but do we really still need that that um, capacity? Maybe like maybe we should look and see what what types of capacities kind of base core capacities should we have? Um, should we have a um, 3D printing, like a large scale 3D printing or a small scale mobile that we could print parts for things if um, if supply chains break down and we need to, right? So that kind of... Sort of a stopgap. Stopgap, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So we've uh, we've kind of discussed the the undesirability of the the ribbon cutting model of, uh, of economic development and uh, industrial policy and uh, i don't know if you read uh robert Asselin's piece about sort of darpa like model which i think we we had we sort of looked at a couple weeks ago and found odd in some ways um but if you were if you were in charge of of doing you know a canadian industrial policy 
where would you put your both organizationally and in terms of like sectorally what would you be looking at I think that's a really good question. So I think part of the issue is um, regulating IP, um, regulating, checking, um, so fintech. So the big banks aren't gonna want us to, to open up fintech. I think we need to kind of take a good look at that and see if it makes sense for our Canadians, uh, for our consumers, to kind of push back against that almost monopoly situation that we've got there with, with the banks. Um, but in terms of where I would invest the money, I like my view of, um, industrial policy is making sure that we have the infrastructure that people need. So I would like to have, this is purely, um, I don't know. I don't know if this is broadly held among leftists, right? but this is what I <laughs> sure. think. Um, and I do think it is. So I think that we should have like a public transportation system. So via rail that actually works, high speed rail, intercity and intracity public transit that's affordable for people. Um, public telecoms that so that's affordable for for businesses and people because that's a huge cost for businesses as well. And and mm -hmm. if we had a, a public option for telecoms. I think that counts as an industrial strategy. I think that counts as sure. um, it's productivity enhancing, productivity right? enhancing childcare. That's industrial strategy, yeah. actually, to have affordable, high quality childcare, um, free university education. That's an industrial strategy. So those are the types of things that I think of when I think of industrial strategy and when I think of, of investing in things. We have the National Research Council. We have. Um, universities and we have science organizations most of the money from the national research council goes out to irap which is just handouts to, to companies right yep. and i think we should take a really hard look at how effective those types of, of handouts that we give are um i think um stuff like the export development bank or, or other banks that do like um technological like they work with people to, to develop skills and, and find gaps mm -hmm. and they also loan money at affordable rates they offer financing i think that probably makes a lot of sense and 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 um sure. that's something government can do but and and then finally um i'm becoming more and more convinced that public banking is something that we need so uh if you look at alberta they actually have a state-owned bank and uh, ATB. somewhat ironically, yes. somewhat <laughs> ironically, exactly. The last province in Canada that you think would have that kind of public infrastructure. Yeah. In, in a fit, in a fit of peak, <laughs> they nationalized finance in the 1930s and sort of never looked back. And North Dakota has the same thing. And what research shows yeah. is that those public banks actually are really good for local economic development, for regional economic development. They lend out more money to local projects because they have more faith in that those projects um, mm -hmm. actually paying off than say Royal Bank or one of the big banks would have. Um, and they're not, credit unions can perform the same role, but they're limited in how much they can lend out as well. So credit unions yes. have some, some limits by legislation that maybe we could fix. So I think that public banking uh, is, is really important. And I think that if we had, if the, the Canada infrastructure was a real public bank and it could loan money out say to municipalities at low rates, um, that would be an alternative to these P3s, right? Because municipalities yeah. often go the P3 route, um, which is just paying a bunch of money for a private sector organization to finance it, basically, right? They're just borrowing yeah. the money instead of having it on their 
their books. It's, it's an accounting trick. It, it costs them more money in the long run. Normally, yeah. so if we had a public bank that could loan that money and hold the asset on their books, that would cost us less in the long run, right? That would be the, mm -hmm. the financing alternative that could help municipalities address the infrastructure gap that they've had. Yeah, the whole P3 thing, when you think about it, it makes sense in a situation where you have governments that are very cost constrained. But with like interest rates where they are for central governments, especially like it doesn't you don't really need the private sector like matching or, or partnering because you can just raise the money yourself like trivially. Exactly. Uh, I, at, I, at the, current interest rate. Exactly. So we don't need the private sector financing the projects for us. We we can finance it through the public bank and pay the pro private sector to do the design and the build and mm -hmm. and that part. Right. Like I. I still see a, a vital role for the pub private sector in these these organizations. Um, I'm not saying that we want, you know, government bureaucrats running running childcare centers. We want <laughs> highly trained private citizens who are hired by the government to do that work, right? Experts yeah. in that work to do it. And so that role between the government and um, or the public financing and the rest of the economy, I think, I just envision slightly differently than our current government. Very good. Jen, <laughs> do you have anything you want to you want to ask? No, I'm I'm happy to uh, leave it there as we're we're going long on time here. Perfect. Well, yeah, it's uh that's uh that is a hundred percent fine. I think we yeah we're usually north of an hour these days. We've gotten very self indulgent in our old. Days. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Angela, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, the book is Share the Wealth, and do you want to read the subtitle again? <laughs> yes, the subtitle is How We Can Tax Canada's Super Rich and Create a Better Country for Everyone, Even People that, that Don't is... Like Taxes. Yes, and that is by Angela McEwen and Jonathan Govain, uh, who are both lovely people, and uh, the book is available wherever fine books are sold. So I, I hope you, you run and pick up a copy. Uh, Angela, once again, thank you so much. We really appreciate you coming on, and uh, until next time, uh, listeners, bye-bye. <laughs>